This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. All right, listeners of the Canadian Investor Podcast, we have a special episode. I am joined by Chris Mayer. You run Woodlock House Family Capital. You are the author of 100 Beggars Stocks That Return 100 to 1. I've read it. I know many of the listeners have read it. Probably hundreds of them have read it. So thank you for joining the show here, Chris. Thank you for having me on, Braden. It's good to chat with you. Chris, you and I have gone back and forth a couple times over calls, emails. You know, I, I like to think that my investing strategy is very similar to yours and the fact that you and I are pretty lethargic. We don't do... <laughs> We don't do a whole lot. And you know, just before we hopped on, you said year to date, your portfolio turnover is, is zero. And uh, I think that's a commendable stat, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, we, we were talking about before, kind of the ideal would be zero, that you don't have to touch everything. Everything you buy, you love, it's great, stays great, and, and you never make any changes. So uh, yeah, year to date, I haven't, haven't turned over the portfolio at all. I have one new position that came as a spinoff. So that, that's it. So, but how do you fill most of your time then? Because, you know, this is a profession where it's probably one of the only or one of the few professions where inaction leads to great results. But that doesn't mean you're, you're not reviewing portfolio companies, looking at new ideas, turning over new rocks. So how do you, how do you fill your day? Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, there's a lot, <laughs> even though portfolio, there's nothing going on there, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. So, I mean, I, I'm always working on something with a portfolio company, either talking to somebody who used to work there in some way or other, or reading some transcript somebody else did on that kind of thing. So that, that's a good chunk of time. I talk to, you know, I talk to other investors, talk to you. So there's a lot of just talking to other people. And then, you know, you're just always doing reading. And, and when I say also doing work on portfolio companies, it's not necessarily just that company, but they have competitors and they have other right. companies that are similar. So that also involves keeping up with what competitors are doing and reading their transcripts and kind of just, just staying, you know, kind of current and keeping your eyes open for anything, interesting nuggets, things you didn't know, things, staying, things are staying on track. Uh, so that's what I spent a lot of time on. And I assume a lot of that time is also spent on uh, that bookshelf that sits behind you, which yes, is, uh, <laughs> I was going to say I, I, I forgot. The other thing is it leaves a lot of good time for reading. So there's, you know, I like to also just kind of get away from financial stuff entirely and just, you know, get into a good book and uh, have some type of time to think and and that's important too. Love it. All right, so I'll start with a few questions of notes. Uh, you know, I looked back on my notes when I made the book and I even did a segment on the pod, oh God, maybe two-ish years ago on it. And I was just looking through my notes and you start the, por correct me if I'm wrong, but you start the book with the coffee can portfolio uh, concept. What is this concept? Why is it important? And, and how can people use it? Yeah. So the coffee can portfolio, not my idea. It came up... Uh, guy named Robert Kirby came up with it. He wrote about it in the Journal of Portfolio Management in 1984. And if you Google it, you can still find that original article. And um, definitely I would recommend it. Kirby's a good writer. So he he was a manager, money manager, and he had this interesting experience where he was managing this one woman's mo money for years and years and years. And unbeknownst to him, 
uh, her husband had been piggybacking on all his ideas, except with one change, which is he never sold anything. So, you know, all these years go by, decade, let's say, and he, or whatever it was, and he, the uh, husband dies and he gets the, the account. And so that's when, you know, the woman transfers the account to him and that's when he sees this guy has been buying all the stuff that he's bought for her over the years. And then some of these positions have become like monsters, including there was one that was bigger than the entire portfolio he managed for her. <laughs> uh, and so he like, it literally hit him and it was just a lesson that, you know, there's just way too much turnover and he would have been better off had he not not been uh, not been so active. So he came up with this idea. He called the coffee can portfolio. And the idea of the coffee can is uh, that in the old West, um, people used to put their valuables in an empty coffee can and they just kind of hide it and leave it alone. And so that's the same idea of applying that to portfolio management. So you'd create a portfolio, let's say, you know, 10 to 15 stocks or whatever it is, carefully selected and chosen put it in your coffee can and you leave it alone and see what happened, you know, after 10, 10 years. That's the idea. And, um, you know, what it does is does a number of things. One, it forces you to really think long-term because you know you're not going to be able to sell something. And then it protects you from your worst instincts, selling when stocks are down or, you know, chasing things that are hot and all of those sorts of things. So there's been a number of people have done sort of real world experiments with coffee can portfolios and invariably they get some sort of result that, that Kirby got. There's one stock that becomes a very big winner or uh, the whole overall portfolio outperforms and and there's also usually, you know, a couple of big losers in it. So that that's the basic idea. Well, I love the concept, right? Because you're forced to try to at least pick companies that you know are going to have some sort of enduring competitive advantage because you can't do anything. You can't you can't change names in and out of the portfolio. And I think a lot of people would be surprised at how well they do. Now, I looked through your notes on this topic uh, on your blog, and you had uh, an idea for a coffee can pick of Fairfax Financial, which is a you know Canadian listing here. This is the Canadian Investor Podcast. That's been quite the pick since you wrote that article. I think uh, <laughs> it, it was trading at like what? Like... 60 cents on the book value there back in, I don't know, four or five years ago. Right. Yeah. So good. <laughs> yeah. Well uh, done. I don't know if you, yeah. if you held it, but well done. Thank you. Thank you. No, I didn't actually. And um, well, I had it in a different portfolio too uh, when I worked for the Bonner family office as well. Uh, but um, yeah, that's been a, it's been a good one. I mean, even better than I would have guessed. So that's kind of the, you know, the beauty of it. You just, you know, you focus on certain, well, we'll probably get into these, but you get into certain uh, um, financial metrics, and as long as those are in place, you you know you let it go. And so, then some of these are you know winners stayed winners tend, tends to happen if you you know you got a stock that has performed well over a long period of time, probably you know the business means something. The business is probably a strong performer as well. So a hundred baggers aside, because statistically, and you point this out, you, you need to typically be looking at smaller names to have that kind of upside. But there are phenomenal market beating compounding returns to be found with you know market cap sizes across the board. What are some of the qualitative and quantitative? So we'll, I guess we'll start with qualitative and then we'll go to quantitative yeah. factors among these kind of mega winners that you found. Yeah. Well, I actually think the qualitative ones are probably maybe more important ultimately long-term. So qualitative things would be thinking about 
competition and uh, competitive advantage. You know, Buffett talks about moats and, but the reason you do that is because uh, if you want to hold something for a very long period of time and it's earning high returns on capital, which is one of the qual- quantitative things we'll talk about, it has to have, has to be able to do that for a long period of time. And, and so that's why you spend a lot of time, you know, I spend a lot of time on that when I'm looking at a new name, sort of what's, what makes it special? Why is it earning these high returns and getting, getting a good grip on that? And if you're confident about that, then, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's one qualitative metric that passes. Another one uh, I spent a lot of time on is management and sort of the, you know, culture around a business. Now, that's kind of a word that it's kind of hard to define, but culture being, is it aligned with shareholders' interests? Is it friendly to shareholders? Is it, you know, I often find that the great performers like that have loyal employees, you know, lower turnover than competitors would be a kind of a qualitative factor you could consider. So those are a couple of things that I think are important. Um, and then on the quantitative side, and some of it blends. So, you know, maybe it's not exactly a number, but I always think about, you know, what the return on capital is a business just in some way. And, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, it's not like a specific number because all these numbers, whether it's return on invested capital or return on capital employed or return on equity, they all have, pros and cons, right? So that's why you look at all of them. And then the, the are they taking that and, and reinvesting it? That's what you really want too, as opposed to uh, you have a great company that has a great ROE, but they're paying it all out in dividends. You know, you don't really want that. If you want, if you're hunting for the big, big winners, you want to, you want them to reinvest that capital as long as possible. And starting small, that's another one that's um, ideal. Although I think I've, I've said before that if I wrote the book again, I might not emphasize that so much because, you know, you could find some really great companies. And if it's a $2 billion market cap or something, it would be a shame to, you know, walk away from that or even $10 billion market cap if it checks all these other boxes. So those are some of the ideas that that I found. Yeah, because I, I personally love that range uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're, they're proven assets. There's lots of history behind them. They might have been public for a while, and uh, nothing wrong with a fifty bagger. Say it turns into a hundred billion, <laughs> hundred billion yeah. market cap name. Uh, you know, we sure. all we all walk walk to the bank with uh, our pockets a little heavier than before. So, yeah, I mean, you get twenty five percent a year for ten years. That's ten x almost. So that's a very good return. No one's going to worry. No one's going to be disappointed about that. <laughs> No, and if they are, then they they need their expectations reset. Uh, yeah. Okay, that's that's really helpful. And so you kind of hinted at that those metrics that you like the the qualitative aspect of them are what makes these businesses special in their ability to maintain those said high growth rates and high return on invested capital. And so uh, is there anything else that you mentioned? I know you, we've, you've talked about margins before. And, mm. and, and what I've noticed is that all of these things lend themselves to, to the qualitative aspects, right? Like durably being able to maintain those margins tell an important story, right? Like there's right. an important story on Visa and MasterCard being able to maintain 60% free cash flow conversion metrics. Like those are not numbers that you just find in the wild very often. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's some of these numbers, they, they can give you clues. So in the book, you know, I share some research about gross margin being sticky. Uh, so, you know, it's, 
that's one area that if you have a business where you have a high gross margin, there might be a lot of other stuff going on between gross margin and net that's kind of noisy, but high gross margins tend to tend to be sticky. That can be a good clue. But I don't I wouldn't emphasize too much any particular metric like that, only because you know, the end result sort of that you want is that high return on capital and high reinvestment rate. And there are a lot of ways to do that. Lower margin can, businesses can do it. You know, I'm sure you and I know. Costco great, and Walmart have been doing go, just like fine. Great distribution. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Walmart, there's great distribution businesses that don't have very high margins, but because there have other factors that contribute to being high return. I mean, they're very capital light or rapid asset turnover, those kinds of things. So it's not so much like particular ingredients. And then you want to make sure you get that, that end result. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, focusing on a, a subset of metrics can can go down a path of uh, value traps and subpar businesses. However, when they're sustained for a really long time, chances are there's some underlying qualitative aspect that uh, is driving driving those. Numbers. Yeah, that's when the magic really happens. Is when you can find someone, that, a company that can, as you say, durably put up these numbers year after year after year. I took something from your blog here, quote, Bank of New York Mellon went sideways from 1976 to 1981 amidst a 100x run. Texas Industries sideways from 80 to 85 in its 100x run. American Express flat from 85 to 92 amidst its 100x run. Berkshire at its peak in 1998 was no higher seven years later, on and on and on. I mean, there's there's countless of these types of examples. Huge winners you know, are facing the same story time and time again. Massive volatility, uh, periods of boring flat returns, extreme pessimism, the iPhone's dead to extreme optimism, the services business is the best ever. How do you zoom out and balance on what matters yeah. amidst these like gigantic decade runs. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, <laughs> the long periods where stocks go, where they went nowhere, because in some ways that's the, to me, that's a bigger nightmare than when something goes down a lot. At least when something goes down a lot, you got something to do, right? You can buy more of it, <laughs> but if it's just sitting there and it goes nowhere for a long time, that's, that's tough. Um, I think that's underestimated because, uh, it's just hard to hold on to something so long it goes nowhere. Yeah, it's e- easier said than done. When eight years later, and you're like you're, you're sitting on this thing, and the S and P's up a hundred, uh, you know, a hundred percent over the same time. Yes, absolutely. That's it. What I do, I mean, and it's no, there's no magic to this. I mean, I wish it were. I wish it was easier somehow. But you know, what I really focus on is the business itself, and I try hard to just stay on that and not worry too much about where the price is. And as long as the those key metrics and that I'm looking at that are important for that business, as long as they continue to go in the right direction, as long as it continues to grow, then ultimately, you know, the stock price is going to react, catch up at some point. So that's really what I focus on. I don't worry too much about the price. I'm focusing on the business and for every business, you know, you, you should kind of hone in on what's most important and then watch that and really make that your focus and screen out a lot of the macro noise and what the market's doing and and those sorts of things. They can really be distractions. I think that is a good segue uh, and, and a self-serving one as well. I've worked with you to bring all of the Woodlock House Family Capital holdings onto the Stratosphere platform and make sure we had all the KPIs for you. Uh, I like to draw on two examples, which are you know, one Netflix stock dropped 35% in one day with their Q2 earnings last year. 
uh, it lost over a hundred billion in market cap, and and their revenue is up high single digits in the quarter from the year before. But it was the first time that they had a net churn, a net decline in subscriber ads, and so that the the market hated that. Number two, I I run two companies. My investor updates don't talk about gap accounting figures. They're exclusively about the KPIs that I think I should be measured on. And so can you ex- speak to the importance of tracking these individual you know, company metrics? Because I think you just hinted with that on like how you maintain conviction and hold these things for that long when the price may not have done anything for, for a decade, but the numbers that you think that you should evaluate the management team on seem to be robust. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things I like most about Stratosphere platform is those KPIs. So almost every business has something that they report, but it's not, you know, part of the financial, whatever disclosures that everybody else reports on. So it's not earnings per share or sales, something else. So, you know, I can think of an example like, you know, Old Dominion Freight Lines is one that's got a lot of different KPIs, actually. You know, there's an operating ratio they report all the time that is a measure of efficiency. Then there's things like revenue per hundred weight. There's a lot of metrics like this, you know, that they report. And so, you know, sometimes like uh, it was last quarter to quarter before where they had kind of, you know, looked like weak headline numbers in terms of revenue and earnings per share. But um, if you looked at those underlying KPIs, it was like the second best quarter the company has ever had. <laughs> you know, it was facing tough comps because the best quarter they ever had was the one exactly a year ago. Yeah. Uh, and the market sold off pretty hard. No good deed goes unpunished, of course. That's exactly right. But if you looked at those numbers, you had nothing to worry about. I mean, even this year, well, you know, they have a, there's a decent chance that this year might be kind of a flat year or slightly down. But if you look at those KPIs, it'll be the second best in company history, uh, second only to last year. So that kind of puts it in perspective. You know, that's why I like to the KPIs because then you can easily sort of track them. And another one that easily that comes to mind is you know, Constellation Software and, and all the sister spins. They always report things like, you know, uh, the organic growth. You want to see how that breaks down. And it's nice to be able to compare it quarter to quarter and get some perspective on that, how that's changing and evolving. Number of number of executions, capital deployment, yeah, that kind of stuff. Exactly, exactly. So those are those are two examples that, that come readily in mind. Um, I think you tweeted out, uh, I, I, I think it might've been old dominion. I think you tweeted about Copart and you're like, look, this is statistic, like based on the metrics that I, that I think matter, this business is doing phenomenal. Does this look like a security that should be trading down 30%? Yeah. And it, it helps. It's, it's why we started doing it because it really helps you remain, uh, focused and and keep your conviction in your investment and thesis calm. and calm and calm <laughs> yeah. in your investment thesis that you set out with because you know years go by price drives narrative and then all of a sudden if you didn't focus on what you originally had in your investment thesis you, you can head for the exit sign or uh, not have that ideal portfolio turnover of zero. Yeah, and also I think you know it's important too that to see how those change over time. That's the other thing I really like about Stratosphere. You look at this one thing to note what the KPIs this quarter or whatever it was or last year, but then to be able to put it out on a graph and see it over the last you know fifteen sixteen quarters, because that gives you a sense too that these businesses you know they're 
organic uh, living things, sort of, for lack of a better you know word. They change. There's going to be some changes, right? Nobody's even your weight doesn't stay right here every <laughs> every second. Yeah. It fluctuates a little. Yeah. It's the same thing with businesses. There's a little bit of you know. There's things they wiggle wiggle on, and it's okay. Yeah. It's not the yeah not the end. We have experimented with no, nothing officially, but it's showing weirdly promising results. So Adrian, who's one of, is my co-founder and runs our data team, he's been messing around with like back testing because we track segment changes of like businesses that rapidly are constantly changing their business segments have a tendency to rapidly underperform. Hmm. And if you look at Berkshire, we have like 30 years of the exact same segment reporting Wow! versus Disney the numbers change like every six quarters and they're, they're, they're repositioned into where things fit in constantly. Right. And, I, and I get the business has changed. They have this new streaming business, whatever. But instead of adding new segments, they completely swap them out. Uh, you know, a lot of changes at the executive level. And you know, it's easy to pull on Disney right now. It's obviously a world beating company, but the stock has done horrendously since they did all these changes. And uh, it, it's really helpful to kind of, look at those things and the management says one thing and then are they doing that other thing or are they now on this new uh, new reporting schedule new scheme i think it's quite fascinating to look at yeah and if they're a repeat offender that's really interesting you know if they're it's okay like you say every once in a while something does happen and you have a change but if you're repeatedly doing it and you know you look over time the segments have changed that's really interesting and it makes sense because you would think Companies that do that, right, are companies that are sort of struggling to find something. So that's right. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense. All right, growth, growth, growth is the name of my next question here. It's been proven time again. Revenue growth is the number one factor for return decomposition over time. Uh, you know, all, all else equal, but paying a, a reasonable multiple certainly improves performance. How do you think about balancing this this balancing act that is the great the great solve uh, of equity investing? How, how do you That's think it. about that internally when you're making decisions? Yeah, I mean it's all about the it's all about the estimated return. So, but even you know, so to start, I mean, you always calibrate your multiple to the growth rate. And another way of looking at that is to break that down and kind of return on invested capital and reinvestment rate. And, Company that's earning high returns and reinvesting everything is going to be worth a lot more in the market than one that isn't. Uh, one that requires an awful lot of capital and doesn't earn those high returns is going to be worth a lot less. And so, it's having some view of what that will look like over the next five or ten years, and and then putting a multiple on those cash flows at that point and seeing what your IRR is to present. So I say that and make it sound like it's more of a math problem, but of course it's you know difficult because you have to make some estimates and you're and it's some things you're less sure about than others. So you know you sometimes you will trade off something that seems like it will have a lower return, but you're a lot more sure about it, you know, than something that's got a lot more competition. Yes, it's a lot higher growth, higher returns, but you have no confidence that it's going to be able to maintain that for five or ten years. So there's always some trading up and down the ladder. And then some of it's personal preference. I mean, at some multiple, and in theory, I say, I lay it out like that because in theory, it's a math problem. So if you found something that was trading 100 times earnings could still be, you know, a great idea based on uh, growth rates and returns and all that. But um, there is an area there where you get kind of uncomfortable uh, because, uh, you know, your sort of window for, ex for execution sort of tightens up and, uh, 
yeah, mistakes are usually punished. So, um, you know, it's the great, like you say, it's a great, it's one of the great, I don't know what you should call it, the great solve, great mystery for equity investing is how you, how you balance that. Ideally, you want to pay as low a multiple as you can for as high as quality companies as you can get. Um, but it's easier said than done. It certainly is. And I think that uh, myself, many of the listeners of this podcast who tune in every week will attest to that, that they start their journey with value traps, high yield, uh, low growth names and stuff that's below book, <laughs> stuff that's well below book. And, and of course, when they work out, you get the twin engines, right? They Then it really works. But, uh, you know, if, if you were going to invest in a private company, you would do excessive due diligence before you bought your neighbor's auto garage. You would figure out, can the business be bigger now in 10 years than it is now relative to what I'm paying? Uh, you know, is it going to be a high quality business? Is it going to be a new auto shop that opens next door? Like all these kinds of questions. That's right. And then people gamble their whole life savings in the equity markets without asking those same basic questions. So I, I find it uh, one of the strangest phenomenons uh, of human behavior. It is. I think par- partially that is because it's so easy to buy and sell in the equity market. There's no friction. Push your button and you're yeah. in. Yeah. Push your button, you're in. Push your button, you're out. And that's it. And uh, <laughs> versus, say, buying real estate where it's kind of a hassle, right? You got a old process and you got to settle. And uh, so I think people would be more thoughtful about it if they if they couldn't get in and out so easily. We need to do like a, I, I need to start like a brokerage trading platform where you have to like solve some intensely complex riddle before you're able to log in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to, yeah. you have to like do, you know, on my, uh, you have to do a calm test. You have to do like yeah. 10, 10 to 15 minutes of meditation and then solve a very complex riddle. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there's a lot of interesting little rules like that you can make for yourself. I, I know somebody like, you know, they, when they make a decision on something, they always like to wait at least two weeks before they enact it and see if they still think that way. Very smart. You know, there's a lot of little things like that just to, like you say, try to get to that area where you're calm and making the best decision. Absolutely. What about serial acquirers do you find so attractive? Because I'm very drawn to them. Uh, you, My portfolio, I don't know if you know this, but it's roughly 50-ish, 55% in Constellation and the spinoffs. Uh, it's one of those, you know, good problems to have the old investing paradox. I don't trim yeah. winners. So it, right. it keeps maintaining that position. What do you find about serial track, uh, serial acquire so attractive, you know, with ones you own and just conceptually? Yeah. Um, you know, I think for people like us, we're so focused on capital allocation. I think that's one appeal because the good serial acquirers are all about that. Capital allocation is a is the primary thing they think about. So that's their business operation. <laughs> yeah, that's the whole model, right? Is um, taking capital, reinvesting, and doing it again and again. So I like that aspect of it. They think about it like that way, and they're aligned with us as investors in that way. Because that's what we want: good returns, good reinvestments. That's that's the big one. I think also there's something nice about uh, owning businesses like that that are so hard to kill. Because most of these serial acquirers have so many different businesses. It's not like, you know, one of those businesses could go to zero. For example, in Constellation, you never know it. I mean, you wouldn't. so what? You know, so they're, they're really resilient that way. The, the good ones, again, there's always examples we could point to of 
serial acquirers where they sort of didn't quite get the model right. There's ones that get too much leverage or and it's all kinds of pitfalls. But generally, it's a very resilient model, not very economically sensitive, focused on capital allocation. And those are those are great things right there, uh, separation from a lot of other businesses. And if you pick the right jockey, uh, time and time again, we've seen some of these monster winners uh, with serial acquirers. I think Mark, Mark Leonard, he calls them high-performing conglomerates, HPCs. He points to yes. you know Berkshire, Roper, uh, among the, the long list. And you're sure. right. I mean, there's that's, a whole bunch of them in Sweden. You know, Sweden a has a ton. Yeah, if you look up uh, Lifco and Lagerkrantz and AdTech and Indutrade, I mean, monster winners over a period of time. One under the radar one, uh, I don't know if you've looked at, but it's Canadian engineering roll-up called WSP. I've owned the stock for six or seven years now. They buy roughly 30 engineering firms around the world a year, and they're the largest civil firm now in aggregate in the world. It's about $25 billion in market cap on the TSX, yet you, wow. don't, you don't hear a peep about them, and it's amazing. I should stop talking about them on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, another one to look at that, that's kind of under the radar. All right. So when it comes to, you know, picking the right jockey and picking the right management team, I look at your writings, I look at your longs, which is, you know, a wonderful roster of management teams and owner operators as well. It resembles the sidecar investing strategy, which I'm personally a big fan of. Can you explain, you know, why this is important to you, maybe on the owner operator thing? And then, and then to, give an overview of how you even evaluate them. You mentioned before culture, but like in actual process, like are you reading their writings? Are you listening to the calls? Uh, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, so why is it important? Yeah. Cause I didn't always used to be so focused on owner operators. So it's something that came over time and experience. And, you know, I would see differences in behavior and the idea of investing with people who had skin in the game really had great intuitive appeal. And there's a couple of books I read by Martin Sosnoff. He really made an eloquent case for the owner-operators. Uh, one book was called Humble on Wall Street, and the other one's called Silent Investor, Silent Loser. They're both out of print. And he's not really an investor like us in a lot of ways, but on this particular issue, he's really good. Uh, so there's that, and then I started to do – come across research that showed the outperformance of companies where the CEO owns, you know, 10% of the stock, outperformance of founder of companies where they're founder led, outperformance of companies where there's a family that owns a certain percentage. So you start to put these things together. And sometimes I think, you know, that's really what investing comes down to is accumulating these little edges. Uh, and so just, if you just made that one filter change, you have this seeming, <laughs> you know, positive, uh, flow there behind you, you know, increasing the odds of success. So that, that, that was all pieced together over time. I think that's why it became important. And, and finding them is hard. I mean, it's um, yes, like reading their letters. Sometimes, you know, they'll stand out because they write a, They write a letter that covers all the things you, you would want to know as a business owner. I mean, Mark Leonard's letters, obviously famous Warren Buffett's letters. These are, they write their own letters clearly. Um, and they're very sort of candid and, uh, forthright about business in a way that 
you pick up a annual report for a lot of companies and it's not clear that they wrote them necessarily. It's more of a marketing um, piece. Very corporate talk versus the owner yeah. telling you about his business or his or her business. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. You hit it right there. What you really want is you want an owner who's talking about their business. And the closest, closer you, you can get to that, probably got somebody. That's a good sign. It's a good sign. Um, but it's not never easy. I mean, anytime you can, yeah, listen to them speak. Uh, sometimes that's happened too, where you hear someone talking like, wow, and he's talking like he's an owner and he's, and that's, that's a clue. Um, but that's, that's hard because you can't screen for it so easily, right? right? So it's something you just, a lot of reading and talking and finding out who the most respected people are in space and then researching from there. Yeah. It's, it's super difficult to do, but, and there's no, kind of guide or right way to do it, but, you know, hop on a call, read a letter. I mean, you'll, there's no like kind of like super green flags, like, oh, this is excellent, but red flags stick out like sore thumbs and yes. you can't unsee them, right? Like just avoid those, right? So you're just kind of doing a lot of gut check and incentives, 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 right? Like that's the whole point of the owner operator thing, the, the incentive structure, if, the management team owns a lot of stock. They're going to act like owners instead of a corporate executive that's just trying to make their bonus, right? Like mm-hmm. it's an entirely different incentive structure. Sure. And it's one people can totally understand, you know, if you're, you own a house versus rent it. There's that old saying, no one washes a rental, you know, when it comes to cars. Right. Uh, that's a lot of stuff. We, we know that that's how it is. And so it's no different in business. Chris, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Where can people uh, find your work, find you online and, and so forth? Sure. Well, I mean, Google Woodlock House, uh, I'll come right up there and you can find my blog and uh, my books. And then I'm also on Twitter. Well, it's now called X. <laughs> yeah, you're on X. So I'm on X it's, and the handle there is Chris W-M-A-Y-E-R. So you can uh, find me there too. I haven't read your other books because I'm on your website right now and I didn't know you had any other books. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now I have some more material. The world, yep. right, the world right side up from Brazilian farmlands to Colombian gold fields, from Chinese shopping malls to Indian hotels, from South African wine country to the boom bust of Dubai. Th- this looks uh, hidden investment opportunities. This this looks right yeah. up my alley. I'm a I'm a big traveler and investor. Well, that's so. it. Uh, you know, so all these books like have you know, they all cover like different phases of my uh, you know my career. So that right worldwide setup was uh, yeah. I did a whole bunch of international travel and just kicking around all kinds of markets. And it was before hundred baggers. Um, so I thought about things a little differently then, and a lot differently actually. Um, but uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun to write that book. And, uh, and I did a whole bunch of travel after that. And I thought about doing a sequel, but I never got around to it. I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain too, for a long time. And he was sort of my inspiration, the way he would just get out and drop in a place. And right. So, boots yeah. on the ground. Boots on the ground. That was it. Yeah. I love that. And it, maybe it speaks to, when I look at your holdings, I mean, it's, it's, you're an American investor. Uh, you know, you, you manage U.S. funds, but you have a lot of uh, international exposure to the a lot of these kind of hidden gems that don't trade on uh, the NYSE or the Nasdaq, and I think that that's pretty interesting. 
Yeah, all over in Poland and Sweden. And <laughs> so uh, that's always been, I've always been interested just sort of in the bigger world. And uh, that comes out in my investing taste too. And I think so you, love to you could probably find growth at a more reasonable price in a lot of these markets as well. Yeah, sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. Yep. Love it. Well, appreciate you taking the time, Chris. Uh, if you guys haven't read A Hundred Baggers, you can, uh, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. It's available on Amazon, right? Yes. Yeah. hundred baggers, stocks that return a hundred to one and how to find them. And uh, you know what, Chris, when I first saw a lot of people talking about the book on, on Twitter, I was like, what in the bull market? Uh, <laughs> what in the uh, hype mania book is this? And I read it and I loved it because it was, it's very long-term compounding thinking uh, yeah. about, you know, companies that sustain wonderful competitive advantages. And so I was, I was That's right. It's one of those things about book, book publishing, you know, you can't call it, uh, you know, high quality compounders. No one will read that. <laughs> no one so. will read it. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk hundred back. Let's talk about a stock that returns a hundred to one. Oh, now we're talking. Now we're interested. <laughs> now we are interested. The same way with the podcast. We'll take like one little tidbit of it and like, you know, blow it up, blow it sure. up and have it click worthy. Cause you know, if you're like, discussing macro again like you know it's right. not that uh, not yeah. that exciting so it's uh, it's all showbiz baby well thank you so much uh go check out uh chris's books and his website that is woodlockhousefamilycapital.com the canadian investor podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice Braden and simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.